Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, uh, thank you to the worship team, first of all, for leading us uh, in declaring what we just did. Uh, Do you know that if all we did today, like if we just packed up and went home, uh, we've already done the primary thing that we're supposed to do. We all together declared the greatness of our God. That's why we come together. If, If all we do today is come declare together as a people of God who God is, how great he is, and we leave reflecting on how good God is, This has been a success. That's the point of why we are here. And so thank you to the team for leading us in that exercise. And my hope is that as we dig into the word together, uh, we would just keep that sentiment going and we would all leave here no matter what it is that we look at going, how great is our God? Well, good morning, church. Uh, Yeah, morning. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here at Grant. And we're so glad that you have joined us as we continue to walk through our Old Testament series of Genesis, and more specifically, this morning, as we continue to walk through the narrative of the Great Flood. If you were with us last week, our text unpacked for us the impact that sin had in the world in the generations after the fall. And we saw the the depth that human wickedness had plummeted to as humans grew further and further from God, rejecting his goodness in favor of selfishness and violence, perpetually destroying themselves in the good world that God had entrusted to them. And at the end of the passage, our text concluded with God declaring his intentions to intervene saying in verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. It was a pretty sobering passage, actually. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to head to our website, Uh, or to our YouTube page or your preferred streaming platform to listen to last week's message because it provides the context and the rationale for what we'll be studying over the next few weeks. And that context is the state of the world before the flood. Now, admittedly, for those who were here, there was one element of last week's passage that we didn't emphasize. We just sort of skipped over, partially because last week was a context-building message, and partially because I knew that this Sunday was coming. You see, there was a but in verse 8, in the middle of our text that we skimmed over, a, a sliver of hope in a passage about a world that had gone utterly dark. Right in the middle of unpacking the destruction going on, the total corruption and depravity of the world, verse 8 offered this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
in the midst of the rebellion of all mankind, God found one man who stood out, one man who didn't fully fit the description applied to the rest of the human race. And it's in that verse that we begin to wonder if God is actively doing something that we had yet to see or understand. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures as we continue reading this narrative of the flood in Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 13 for context, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 7, verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that today we would leave differently than how we came as a result of interacting with you through it. Amen. Okay, so up until now... Uh, up until this point in the text, all we know is that God will destroy humans along with the whole earth, right? That's where verse 13 ended off. And we knew that there was one man, Noah, who stood out in this totally depraved world. But it's, it's here in verse 14, right, right after where we started today, that we begin to learn the details about what God has in mind when it comes to this depraved wor world and this righteous man. Look at verse 14 again with me. And remember, all anyone knows, all no one knows at this point is that the earth was corrupt and that God was going to destroy it. Verse 14. So make yourself an ark. What? Right? All he knows, the earth is bad, God is going to destroy it, 
make yourself a boat. It seems a little odd and out of place. Right? And in his, in his next breath, after declaring, right, that, hey, I'm, I'm, this is over, right? He says, and uh, yeah, get, get on boat building. Well, this, friends, is where we get a few clues into what God is thinking. Uh, first of all, he answers the how of, this, of his destructive judgment on the earth, right? He will, as verse 17 finally states outright, bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, right? So here we learn that the destruction of the earth that God has talked about will come by way of flood. And it's also here that we learn about an exception that God had in mind, You see, while God would destroy all human life, as he said, he would save one family. While he would send a flood, one family would have a boat of salvation, and that family was Noah's family. And as we see as we we move along, it would be through this family that God would advance his will. One family that would carry the banner of God's salvation into the next generations. Church, this is the most significant moment in this entire account. We go from understanding that all things would come to an end to hearing that God in his mercy would graciously protect the human race. As it turns out, we see in this moment that the flood was not about destroying humans. It was actually about protecting them. It was about ensuring that the human race that was destroying itself would actually survive, would actually have the opportunity to experience God's goodness and know and follow him. Church, make yourself an ark is one of the most gracious sentences ever spoken. And we should all be on our knees in gratitude that God was merciful to Noah because through Noah, God has been merciful to all of us. Now, one thing that's important to note is that God is not changing his mind here, right? God is not relenting. He's not changing his plans from verse 13 to verse 14, right? Verse 14 is what God had in mind the entire time. And and we know this throughout from throughout the scriptures, God does not change his mind. We read in Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Similarly, James 1, 17 speaks of God's unchanging character. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God does not change, and he does not change his plans as if he somehow has been introduced to some new information that he didn't already have, some new variables that change things. God knows everything because he is God, and he doesn't come to realize things differently than he, real- than he knew them before. Now, what he does do is he gives us the opportunity to come alongside him to understand what he knows, to see what he sees, to experience the process of God's unfolding plan in real time without necessarily giving us every answer before we've had a chance to even ask the questions. God simply reveals his plan to us progressively. 
But that doesn't mean that he doesn't know how things will end or what he will ultimately accomplish. It just means that we need to trust that God knows more than what has been revealed to us at any given time. Which is a wonderful segue into a discussion about Noah. The obvious question we have here in this text is, why Noah? Why is it that Noah's family, out of all the families on earth, were saved? What is it about Noah that brought him favor in the eyes of God? What is it about Noah that made God feel confident in accomplishing his mission through him? Now, before we get to that answer, I do want to offer a disclaimer of sorts. You see, typically, we don't do very many character studies here at Grant, unpacking the traits of a particular person or holding ourselves up to the historical figures we encounter in the Bible. And the reason that we don't do that very often is because our temptation in doing so is to conclude that we simply need to be more like that character. I need to be more like Noah or be more like David or whomever else we may be looking at. And this endeavor often serves to both distract us from noticing God's action, right? What God is doing because we're so focused on the individual that he's working through. And it reinforces the wrong idea that it's within my own power to save myself Right? To grit my teeth and do better, be more like that person without a full dependence on God for our sanctification. We can get caught up looking for the, the five steps of, to a faith like Abraham. Right? Or the seven C's of leadership according to Paul. Or the Daniel diet, which is a real thing. Right? And the Bible can just shift in our minds from God's active and living word to just another self-help book akin to those on the shelf at Chapters by Tony Robbins or Brene Brown. Friends, the reality is that God is the main character on every page of the scriptures. Moses, David, Abraham, Peter, Paul, John, you name it, are at best supporting actors in the story, if not simply extras playing bit parts when it really comes down to it. And it's the same here with the story of Noah and the flood. It is God who decided to save Noah and his family. It is God who told them to build the ark and how to do it. It is God who caused the animals to come to Noah at the appointed time. It is God who closed Noah and his family in. It is God who sent the rain. It is God who eventually stopped it. It is God who established the covenant with Moses. And it is God who would continue to work long after Moses, or Noah expired at the age of 950. Right? As we all know, on its own, an instrument, right? An instrument can't do anything on its own unless it's in the hands of a musician. Church, we need to be careful not to praise the instrument for what the great musician alone can do. May we not forget that God is the main character in this story. He is the great musician, and it is him that we need to watch for, to learn from, and ultimately, with the Spirit's help, seek to be like so that is why we seldom emphasize or focus on the historical figures that we come across outside of the person of God. 
However, with all that said, today we are making an exception, sort of. You see, we do see in this text a man whom God used to faithfully implement his plan. Right? And it's fair to ask ourselves what that faithfulness looks like. Or, or to go along with the instrument analogy, what is it that makes a good instrument for God to use for his glory and his purposes? And so with the disclaimer that Noah is simply playing a supporting role and that this is not an attempt at Christian self-help, let's take a look at what the text tells us about Noah and his role as a tool in God's redemptive action in the world. And there are five traits present in the biblical text that speak to this question about what a faithful instrument looks like. The first thing that we read is that Noah was righteous. Noah was righteous. Verse 9 tells us that. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Now, what does that mean? Well, in light of what we have just read about the state of the world, it means that Noah did not give himself to the same things as everyone else did. In a world that had turned their backs on God, he still feared the Lord. Noah chose to resist participating in the evil of his day. Can I say that again? Noah chose to resist participating in the evil of his day. So a good instrument is one that does not succumb to the prevailing evil and celebrated sin of its time. The righteous stand set apart as children of God, not as children of the world. I'll let you make your own contemporary application. This word righteous is often used in the Old Testament to describe an animal sacrifice without blemish. And so there was, uh, there's something about this that speaks of, 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 of uh, Noah's interaction with other people. Right? There, there was nothing that others could pin on Noah as unbecoming or shallow in character. He was seen as, as morally upright and full of integrity, not only by God, but by the people of his time. Now, it's important that we don't mistake Noah's righteousness as perfection. Right? Noah, as everyone else in his time and of all time, had inherited sinful nature. And would have certainly given in to temptation along the way, falling short of the glory of God, as we read in Romans 3, 23. And as we will read after the flood, spoiler alert, it doesn't take long for Noah's sinful nature to rear its head once again. And so Noah wasn't called righteous here because he was perfect, but rather his faith in God, which we'll unpack a little bit later, was credited to him as righteous. Righteous was a name that was given to him, not necessarily something that he had earned. We learn about this type of transaction as it pertains to Abraham just a few chapters later in Genesis 15:6. This is what we read about Abraham. Abram his name at the time, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. You see, it's not through being perfect, but rather through faith and belief in the only perfect one that righteousness was attributed to Abram and then, and also to Noah. 
In fact, a deeper look at our introduction to Noah in verse 8 affirms this right off the bat. Look back with me at Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this term here for favor is actually the main word in the Old Testament for grace. So this verse is actually better translated as the King James Version does, if that's what you have on your lap. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Noah didn't find favor because he was so awesome, right? Because he was perfect. Rather, Noah was simply the recipient of God's grace. Uh, Listen to this admittedly technical description by J.A. Motter. The formula, X found favor in the eyes of Y, is found about 40 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it is purely uh, formal politeness, not really intended to be taken seriously. But when the impression of all the passages is gathered, it becomes clear that in its strict intention, it deals with a situation where X, in this case Noah, can register no claim on Y, God, but where Y, contrary to merit or deserving against all odds, acts with grace. I said this was technical. Did anybody follow that? So taking verse, or 6 verse 8, then, with its preceding context, we meet Noah as a typical man among men. Like the rest, because he too is part of humankind, he is wicked outwardly and inwardly, a grief to God and under divine sentence. But in distinction from the rest of humankind, a grace of God, as unexplained as it is unmerited, has come to him. He has not found this grace by merit or effort, rather it has found him. That might have just been helpful for me, uh, but uh, I hope it was helpful for you. And stated simply, Noah didn't find grace because he was righteous. Rather, he was righteous because grace had found him. Right? Verse 8, God's grace to Noah comes before verse 9, the statement about Noah's righteousness. And that order is really important. It's also important for us to understand as we seek to be instruments of God in this world, that it is not our efforts that earn God's grace in our lives. It is God's grace in our lives that influences our efforts towards righteousness. For those of us who ever make any right decisions, that's God's grace in your life. For any of us who have served in any capacity that God has used for his glory, that's because God has been gracious to you. Right? The main character is the initiator. The great musician is the one who makes music through us, not because we are great, but because he is great and so gracious to choose and use us. Second thing that we notice about God's instrument, Noah, is that Noah walked with God. Verse 9 again. Noah was a righteous man. 
blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Friends, Noah didn't simply know about God, but he walked with God. He had a a relationship with the one that he was created to have a relationship with. Now, for those who have been following along for the past few weeks, this might bring to mind Noah's grandfather, Enoch. Right? Anybody thinking that? Now you are. (laughs) But... uh, in our genealogy, a couple weeks back in Genesis 5, there was one individual whose, whose end of life was entirely different than everyone else's. Right? We read this, Genesis 5, 24. It said, Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Right? Enoch is the only other individual who is said to have walked with God since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Right? And Enoch, as we saw, walked with God and God saved him from death. Well, who do we see here that God is saving from death? Noah, the one who walked faithfully with God. So, so why did God choose Noah? Because Noah was there. Right? Noah was with God when all the others had fallen away. Well, what instrument does a musician play at any given time? The one that's there. The one that is with them. Right? God doesn't simply use the, the smartest or the brightest or the wisest. He doesn't choose the strongest or the most talented. And you're like, yeah, you're exhibit A. But he chooses those who are there. Those who are with him, walking with him daily in ways that only God can. As we move on, we notice one of the ways that Noah was used. And that is to preach righteousness to others as he prepared the ark for what was to come. Which is our our third point. Noah preached righteousness. Noah was righteous and Noah preached righteousness. Now this statement uh, doesn't appear in our Genesis text today, but it is spoken of Noah in the New Testament. Second uh, Peter 2.5. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Hebrews 7 talks about the way that he preached. He was kind of a fire and brimstone type of guy. It says this, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah didn't simply keep this news of impending doom to himself. Right? He didn't hoard God's word and quietly build his ark for dozens and dozens of years. No, Noah preached the truth. Noah warned the people the entire time. Right? It's like Noah preached in the morning, worked on the ark in the afternoon, and went back for a Sunday evening service to preach again. Noah didn't hold back in inviting others to join him in receiving the salvation that God was providing. As one commentator laments after doing the math of the size of the boat, the tragic story of Noah's ark is that it was built for more than eight people. More people could have spared, been spared God's judgment if they'd only listened and believed Noah. 
right? As we see, in the end, no one else, aside from Noah's wife and three sons, and think about this, perhaps three of his sons, with their wives, listened and responded. But that was not due to a lack of knowledge. God gave every opportunity for others to come to him. And Noah did not keep God's coming judgment a secret. And church, we too need to be heralds of the news that we have received from God. The word that has come to us. We need to be willing to be rejected as Noah was so that all may have a chance to be saved. We need to have a heart like God's who, as 1 Timothy 2.4 says, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, living the Christian life is not simply about keeping our heads down and quietly going about our business as others go about theirs. No, living the Christian life is taking seriously the Christian message, the word of God, that death is coming for all, right? We all know that, but that there is salvation available in Christ, and it's taking it seriously so much so that we make sure that every ear has the opportunity to hear. As we learn here, God's instruments blast God's message as he breathes it into us. The next thing we learn about God's, about being God's instrument through the example of Noah is that Noah was obedient. Noah was obedient. I, I'm not sure if you notice as we read through the text that this is just a little bit out of the ordinary. Right? God speaks to Noah, telling him that he's going to bring an end to all things but that he would be spared along with his family. But in order to be saved, God gives Noah verbal blueprints for a boat that is bigger than anyone has ever seen and tells him to build it so that multiple animals of every species on earth can come aboard and survive with him for hundreds of days. And here's the wild thing about it. Noah does it, right? Noah does it. Look at verse 6.22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. We read again in 7.5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah did all of the crazy things asked of him. And the commands were crazy. First of all, Noah builds a boat in the desert. We should know a little bit about that being in the prairies, Right? It's like owning a surfboard when you live in Winnipeg. I I don't understand that. But he builds a boat in the desert where the closest large body of water was at best estimation over 500 miles away and where large downpours of water just didn't happen. Next, this boat wasn't just any boat. It it wasn't something that he could kind of hide behind his shed as he worked on it. This was essentially the first cruise liner known to man. Look at verse 15. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high, which doesn't mean anything unless you know what a cubit is. So I'll explain. You're like, that could be really small. I don't don't know. Now, while the exact measurements are debated, because a cubit is actually the measurement between your elbow and the tip of your fingers which is different from person to person. So it's hard when you're working with someone else and you come together and, anyway. 
But that's typically what a, a cubit is, is from here to here. And because people are different sizes, that cubit can change. And so there's a little debate about exactly how far this was for Noah. But it gets us in a range of around 450 to 500 feet long. 75 to 85 feet wide and 45 to 50 feet tall with a holding capacity equivalent to that of over 500 railway cars. It's pretty big, right? It's a big boat. A couple of years ago, my family and I visited the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Um, and uh, there, the, the cool attraction is that uh, an ark has been made to the specific biblical dimensions. Theirs is 510 feet by 85 feet by 51 feet. So right in that range. And I can tell you from experience that boat is huge. Uh, here's a couple pictures of the ark built to biblical dimensions. Right? That's the stairway uh, walking up that multiple people can fit along. Just to prove that I didn't just grab these from the internet, we were actually there. Um, <laughs> you can see the boat in the background. Uh, but the boat was massive, right? For me, the, the it was worth the price of admission just to see the scope of this boat in its biblical dimensions. It was unbelievable to think when you actually see it in that perspective. But friends, all this is to say that building this boat was an incredible feat for Noah. And it makes sense that it took Noah and his family upwards of 120 years to build it. Remember, Noah had no trucks, no chainsaws, no cranes. This was all done by hand. Can you imagine the careful planning, the engineering, the troubleshooting, the manufacturing ingenuity that needed to go on, let alone the hundred years or so of sweat and likely many tears along the way? That's not to mention the certain taunts of the onlookers, from mockery to cruelty to perhaps rage at the message that he shared as to why he was building the boat. I anticipate the community was less than supportive of Noah, building a boat to save his family from what would be certain death for the rest of them. And let's not forget that this rejection likely included family. As we read through all of the genealogies, we know that, that in you know, 950 years, Noah probably had more than just these three sons. And so he's being rejected by his own family along the way. And that's before the animals started showing up. I don't know how well-versed Noah was at handling animals, but this novice carpenter certainly had a crash course in zoology as, as few as 6,000 and as many as 40,000 animals, depending on the species estimates and the biblical interpretation of the word kinds, showed up from all around the world to be taken care of and saved from the global catastrophe. I'm sure that we could go on mentioning and deducing more astonishing details from the building timeline, which likely started before Noah's sons were even born, to the sheer number of blisters and calluses, strains, pulls, and breaks that must have accompanied God's wild request of an ark of this magnitude. But what we must get out of this is the sheer obedience of Noah to everything God said, no matter how crazy it seemed. Commentator Kent Hughes says, it is in Noah's obedience that we begin to see what it means to be righteous. 
The righteous person rests everything on the bare word of God and obeys it. We also glimpse what it means to walk with God because to walk with him is not a stroll. It means to go the same way in obedience even as the culture marches the other way. Noah proved his love for God through his obedience. As 1 John 5, 3 says, in fact, this is love for God to obey his commands. Jesus agrees with this in John 14, 21, saying, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Right? Love for God, church, isn't just putting your arms up in worship. Loving for God is trusting and obeying in him. Right? Even when we don't want to, or even when we don't know what will come of it. The text tells us that with nothing but some instructions and a promise, more on that in a couple weeks, Noah obeys, as the text says, everything that the Lord commanded. Now, friends, as we consider this for ourselves, how much more obedient should we be with all that God has provided to us between his spirit, his church, and his word? We've been given so much, and yet we struggle to obey day by day, let alone decade by decade. But if we, as we've seen here in the example of Noah, a good instrument doesn't resist what its handler is doing. A good instrument essentially gets out of the way and lets the musician do what they desire to do through them. Which leads us to the fifth characteristic of a good instrument in the hands of God. How is it that Noah could continue to be obedient in light of all these unknowns and difficulties? Noah had faith in God. Noah had faith in God. Notice that Noah actually believed that God would do as he said. He believed that God was God and he believed that God told the truth. Even when what God was saying was unbelievable... And when others said it was impossible, Noah trusted God over his own logic, over the assertions of others, to Noah, if God said it, it was the truth. Now, that doesn't mean there were no doubts. Professor Daniel Darling writes, don't think for a moment that Noah didn't have days, maybe weeks or even years, perhaps decades, where it all seemed futile. He preached and warned and built for a hundred years while the world around him continued to deteriorate. There was no visible fruit, no sign for him that that this was all going to work out except for the continual presence of God's voice. Church, what a challenge for us to consider. Is God's voice enough? Is God's voice enough? Do we believe God's word to the extent that we will continue to go against the flow of culture, against popular opinion, even against data from our own personal experience or our own personal preferences and desires simply because God said it? Back to what we read about Noah in the book of Hebrews. It says, by faith... Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. 
Right? Noah put his faith in God. The New Testament writers, looking at what Noah lived through, go, it had to have been faith. He put his faith in God and what he said, and he demonstrated his faith cut by cut, board by board, day after day, year after year, with each day needing more faith than the last as time went on with very little fruit or affirmation. Darling considers out loud how we, the church, might even be tempted to view this type of long, unwavering obedience. Noah's continued faith flies in the face of so much popular theology. Noah would not see his best life now. As the writer of Hebrews declares, he believed in what he couldn't see. No converts, no crowds, just a faithful man obeying God in obscurity. Today, we might mistake Noah for a failure. We'd pull him off the mission field. We'd defund his church plant. We'd put mocking headlines in Christian publications, poking fun is it, at his eccentricity. Noah's life, we'd whisper, seems wasted. Friends, can you imagine if for the next hundred years of our church history, we saw very little fruit? No increase in attendance, no new cutting-edge programs, just simple faith in God and obedience to his word without much to show for it? Would we continue to simply be obedient? Would we continue to have faith in God's word? Would we be okay just pressing on? Now, I'm not saying that that is what God is calling us to and that there will be no fruit. But if he was, would we be faithful? Or would we, be, would we strive to be productive by our own standards instead? Right? Would we shift our strategy so that we could see fruit, synthetic or not, that would validate our existence? I think so often we think that faith only counts if the thing we're putting our faith in is big or exciting or right in front of us or is tangibly producing fruit. And yes, well, what God would ultimately do in Noah's life would be huge. I'm sure it didn't seem like it to Noah as the days and years and decades went by and the calling to be faithful simply looked like stripping some more bark. Church, sometimes obedience is a long game. Sometimes faith doesn't offer the return on investment that we think it should. But faith, belief, obedience to God will always prove to be the best decision we could ever make. Why? Because God saw Noah the whole time. And God sees us too. God honors Faith put in his word. Friends, take heart in the fact that God is working through obedience to his word even when we are unsure of it. You know those early mornings spent doing devotions before work when you'd much rather be sleeping in? God sees your faith in obedience. You know how you have just enough to get by but you continue to faithfully tithe and support the mission of God's kingdom, God sees your faith and obedience. 
You know the way that, that you put into action God's command to care for the widow and the orphan by opening your home, by doing a respite for CFS, even though you don't feel qualified to do it? God sees your faith and obedience. You know the way that you spend hours in prayer for that one person in your life and it seems like your prayers remain unanswered, but you keep praying anyway? God hears your faith and obedience in action. You know that job promotion you declined because the extra hours would keep you from serving the church or your neighbors? God sees your faith and obedience. And friends, fruit will come. Maybe not on our timelines. Maybe not even in our lifetimes. But for those who believe in God and trust what he is going to do, they are the faithful whom God uses as his instruments in this world. Which all leads us to our worldview statement for today. God uses the faith and obedience of those who know and trust in him. God uses the faith and obedience of those who know and trust in him. Church, as we wrap up this morning, the prayer for us all is simple. May we, like Noah, not by our own effort, but by the grace of God and the work of his spirit, be used as instruments for the glory and purposes of our God. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, increase our faith in you. Help us to be obedient as you pour your grace out upon us. Thank you for crediting us as righteous and for inviting us to join you as your instruments as you work in this world that you have created. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church. <laughs>